Good morning, great trends and family. Uh, sadly, I can't say it's great to be with you because I'm stuck in our dining room on my told in front of the obligatory bookcase. Um, these aren't even real books. These were from an MFI clear out. But, but nevertheless, we can still do our best to enjoy this time studying God's word together as an act of worship. So let's start with a prayer. King Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it brings life. Thank you that it feeds and sustains us. And I'm sorry when I'm not hungry enough. In this time now, Lord, please breathe new life into it and new life into us by your Holy Spirit. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. Amen. So, Mark chapters 2 and 3. There's a lot here to go through, but that's right, we've got a couple of hours. We've got three accounts here of Jesus causing a bit of controversy, yet again, among the teachers of the law. These folk are the Pharisees, and they're a group of people who almost become like pantomime baddies for Jesus. You know, they, they linger in the wings all the time, and they, they sort of hang around a bit like a bad smell. First, in verses 18 to 22, Jesus' disciples, they're not fasting. And in the Old Testament, there was one day a year set aside for people to fast as a mandatory thing. It was, it was called the Day of Atonement. And fasting was a sign of repentance. It then became a more traditional act into the first century, and the Pharisees took it to a new level by fasting on Monday and Thursday of each and every week. They would do it as a sign of piety and purity. John's disciples, also mentioned here, are more likely to have done it as an act of repentance, to prepare for the coming kingdom and to hasten in the promised time of redemption. But of course, Jesus was here, and in his very presence, We'd started to see earth being colonised with the life of heaven. The whole idea of fasting had sort of temporarily become irrelevant all the while Jesus was around. No need for ritual or symbolism or second best when the very centre and source of it all was standing here in the flesh. Carrying on with that sort of stuff would now, in Jesus' words, be a bit like sewing a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or pouring new wine into an old wineskin. Something new, significant and joyful was obviously happening. Then next in verses 23 to 28, Jesus' disciples pick grains on the Sabbath and they upset the Pharisees again. In response, Jesus refers back to scripture and he mentions a similar situation with David. Now, this does throw up some technical knots that need a bit of untying. But for our purposes this morning, we can be certain that what Jesus is doing is showing how, on two occasions, pious men did something forbidden. First David, now Jesus. But neither of them are condemned by God. It turns out that God's purpose in establishing the seventh day as a Sabbath was actually to offer all his people a time for rest, for nourishment and a chance to enjoy his company. Then we read on. And at the start of chapter three, Mark concludes this whole section of conflict in Galilee. Again, by healing someone with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath, Jesus is exerting his power over it as an important day. Now, the healing itself wasn't even essential. I mean, Jesus wasn't exactly saving a life here. He could have waited, the Pharisees must have been thinking, until the next day when it would have been completely lawful. But look how Jesus preempts the Pharisees' trap. And before they have time to pounce, he neutralises their bite by asking them what is lawful on the Sabbath. Is it to do good or or evil, to save a life or to kill? It's ironic then that this only leads the Pharisees to conspire with the Herodians to begin plotting Jesus' death. 
Now, don't forget that these aren't natural conspirators who each share similar worldviews. The Herodians are loyal to Herod, and this is in a country where large numbers of Jews were heavily constricted, if not entirely crushed, under his rule. The Herodians' interest is only in keeping the status quo and to prevent any pockets of insurgency from springing up again. And the Pharisees, they really stooped this low. Had their vision become so tainted that it could only seek out death as a suitable response to this rabbi from Galilee. Now, on the face of it, Mark's just offering us more examples of the problem of legalism. The notion that being a good Christian is all about doing the right thing. Be good. God can't find any fault in you. And you get your entry ticket stamped at the pearly gates. Good work, says the angel. In you go. Obviously, good Christians like those at Creech know that we're not saved by good deeds. We've no need for the Pharisees legalism. We're not like them who are obviously in the wrong. So let's do without the burden of good deeds. We can forget the excessive formal rules. We can do away with stuffy traditions and we can just follow Jesus, can't we? Well, I have to say that's probably a bit of a modern day trap into which we can too easily fall. Yes, the Pharisees were a super strict group of Jews. They had a law and regulation for pretty much everything. And that was the idea. The law God had given this special, his special nation, Israel, in the Old Testament was extensive, but it didn't cover everything. There were still loads of gaps to plug when it came to how a God-fearing person should behave. So the Pharisees filled those gaps with more and more regulations and, reg- and rules. They wanted it to be watertight. Now, before we write them off as bureaucrats who just love to throw their weight around, along with lashings of red tape, let's really think about it. First, look at what happened to their ancestors in the desert, precisely because they didn't have a good track record of being obedient to the law. Time and again, the Israelites wandered off from God and did their own thing. Timing and again, they had a lesson to learn, usually quite a painful one. And time and again, God would forgive them, pick them up, dust them down and start with a clean slate. So in light of this, the Pharisees' zealous approach to staying faithful to a richly pure Torah in first century Palestine is a pretty respectable thing to be doing. It's a way of learning from the mistakes of generations gone by. Second, it's really important to get into the Jewish mindset. You might have heard about the new perspective on Paul's teaching, with scholars offering a fresh understanding of Paul's thinking when it comes to salvation, what it means to be saved, to be justified, and the role of works within that particular mix. I have to say, I personally find it very convincing. And it goes something like this. So we've generally built up an inaccurate understanding of what the law meant to Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. The Israelites didn't think that they were made righteous, that is made right and acceptable in the sight of a holy, faultless God, by keeping the law with its rules and regulations. So it wasn't legalism that saved you. Instead, as a Jew, you were born into a nation set apart and secured by God. Your status was already as part of his community. So when you kept the law, you weren't earning yourself a new place among the righteous, but maintaining your existing position within the promise of the covenant of God. So these outward acts were signs and markers that you were among the faithful. So when the Messiah turned up one day to rescue Israel as promised, to gather his scattered people from across the diaspora one final time, to overthrow all earthly ruling powers, and to establish his kingdom once and for all, well, you and he knew that you were a keeper. So in the section previous to the bit we're looking at today, when Jesus dines with Levi, the tax collector, and other sinners, 
The Pharisees looked down on these people because they showed no interest for scribal tradition. In other words, they weren't insiders, but spiritual and social outcasts. So by mingling with, breaking bread with and extending God's arm of fellowship to these ignorers of the law, Jesus was steamrolling down the perimeter fencing that kept the Jews and the Gentiles apart. Suddenly, God's grace and acceptance and mercy was at risk of being available to everyone. But of course, even in the Old Testament, this is really nothing new. The dividing wall of who's in and who's out looked an awful lot higher in the eyes of the Pharisees than it was in the mind of God. Consider all those features of the law given to Moses that ensured the Israelites would accommodate and care for their neighbours, those they labelled aliens. And remember Jonah's beef with God purely because God wanted to offer his forgiveness and compassion to those vicious barbarian opponents of Israel, the Ninevites. For Jonah, generously extending mercy and grace to the Ninevites was totally unfair to his own people, who he felt had actually been someone and done something to warrant it. Jonah wasn't happy with the very nature of mercy and grace. Mercy, to not suffer the things that we deserve, and grace, to be blessed with the things that we don't deserve. Now, back to our passage, and 750 years later, like Jonah, the Pharisees couldn't, or refused to, get their heads around the heart of God, being repeatedly poured out for all peoples in all places. I get it, I really do. If I grew up under Pharisaical teaching, I'm pretty sure I'd be confused by the idea that we're here doing all the right stuff, whilst everyone else has a chance to get into God's good books anyway. This sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card kind of makes a mockery of the rules. But their fundamental mistake, N.T. Wright says, was believing the purpose of God was to rescue Israel from the world, not to rescue the world through Israel. Israel would then be rescued itself as part of the process, but not as the point of it all. It's exactly what Paul struggled with too. He grew up under the teaching of the Pharisees, and obediently kept the law as well, if not better than anyone. He said it himself. Yet for him, the major revelation was realising that the law in and of itself meant nothing. It's Jesus that saves, not the law. Paul only realised the sheer scale of the problem of sin after he'd seen the astounding solution to it at work, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So before Jesus, the dire situation of God's people who were suffocating under the law just wasn't fully apparent. In Romans 5, Paul acknowledges that under the law, we're all sinners. As soon as you lay out the standards by which we're to live, in order to be holy enough to enjoy communion with a perfect and holy God, you come to the inescapable conclusion that, tragically, you fall some way short. The more rules there are, the more rules we fail to keep. So Jesus' anger and distress with the Pharisees and teachers of the law was because their concern for legal detail had ironically blinded them to the mercy and grace of God and to the sufferings of others. Of all the people, those who claimed to be the most godly should have known better. In John chapter 13, it says that although some people among the authorities believed in Jesus, the Pharisees, generally speaking, and I quote, did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. Whilst there were some exceptions, like Nicodemus, who in John 3 finds Jesus under the cover of night to ask him some questions and to wrestle with his true identity. By and large, the Pharisees were stubbornly prioritising their own desires over those of God. It was like Adam in Eden all over again, kicking God off the phone and frantically trying to climb up in his place. 
And so we, here and now, find ourselves facing the same question. If our salvation can't be guaranteed by our vain attempts to keep the law, to live by the rules and up to the right standards, what hope do we have? Well, the answer emerges where Mark 3.16 leaves off, pointing forward to Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection. Mark is laying the groundwork for an alternative path than that trodden by the Pharisees. You see, the law only has power to sentence us to death as long as we're alive. Once we've died, the wages of sin have been paid and the law has no more power to condemn us. In Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul writes that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The mystery is that because of the death of Jesus, as Christians, you and I no longer live in such a way that death has a claim over us. In advertising parlance, he died so that we don't have to. And the overthrow of death is also the overthrow, if I can pronounce it, the overthrow of everything and everyone whose power depends on it. Jesus fulfills the requirements of the law, pays the price of sin, lays death in its own grave, and, by faith, I'm gifted life in all its eternal fullness. This is the gospel, and it's the new covenant, the new cloth and the new wineskin, the new promise between God and his people. Through Jesus Christ, our relationship with God the Father and with each other is restored on radically new terms. When we freely choose to fast, we can prepare our hearts and come before God in repentance. When we freely choose to set aside time for a Sabbath, we can find rest and joy in the presence of God. When we freely choose compassion, grace, mercy and forgiveness according to the Spirit, we will honour him in our behaviour, not because we must, but because we can. In other words, only in Christ and by his Holy Spirit can we start living in a way that corresponds to what the law would have required of us had we still been subject to it. And to that I say, Amen.